Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Healthy Indoors Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell, publisher and founder of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And thank you for joining us today uh, on Earth Day 2021, uh, the 51st uh, Earth Day. Um, our show, not coincidentally, will be uh, getting into uh, some of the uh, some, some of the background history of Earth Day and um, a lot of topics that outdoor centric you know i know we always uh focus on the indoor environments but certainly the indoor environment and the outdoor environment are not detached right they're not musically mutually exclusive in fact a lot of what we've been seeing in the outdoor environments over the past several years have had massive effects on our indoor environments so our guest today is president of tom murray environmental consulting he is a, a sustainability expert who spent 44 plus years at the united states environmental protection agency he built his career around finding sustainable solutions through public Public-private partnerships with various industry sectors, such as healthcare, the utility sector, and the automotive industry. He is also a contributor to Healthy Indoors magazine, offering his views in the sustainability snippet, uh, snippets column. Um, I'd like to have you all welcome our guest, Tom Murray. How are you, Tom? I'm doing well, Bob. Happy uh, Earth Day to everyone. Yeah, great, great to great to see you here. Love to love to have you. Uh, uh, you know join us today i mean we you were on the show last year and um you know we had an opportunity to have a lot of discussions uh uh, about environmental topics. And uh, for those of you who, uh, you know, haven't been following Tom's column for the past few years, he's been writing the sustainability snippets column for Healthy Indoors magazine, which I, I just, I love it. It's one of, one of my favorite things in the magazine, I'll be honest. Um, so it's just great to have you here today. Um, not coincidentally, we invited you on for Earth Day. <laughs> Good. So um, I, I guess, I, I guess uh, you, you in the intro, you know, we mentioned that you had 44 plus years uh, at the EPA, which is a long run. Um, you started there uh, back right after its inception, correct? I did. I mean, let me let me take us back, if if I can, put sure. us all in the Wayback Machine a little bit and go back um, to the 1960s, 1970s in the original Earth Day, because I think a lot of people might not know that history. Um, it was, uh, if you go back into that time period, most of the newspapers you would read would be all about the Vietnam War. There's a lot of protests going on at the time. And uh, every once in a while, you'd see an environmental column pop up uh, with fish kill here, oil spill there. Um, for those of you in Ohio, you might remember when the Cuyahoga River caught fire, and that was 1969. Rachel Carson had come out with her Silent Spring book in 1962 and sort of raised the awareness a little bit. Um, but uh, even though we were having a lot of these environmental issues going on, um, nobody really was doing much about it. And that included our friends over on Capitol Hill, um, except for one man. And that one man was Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin, a Democrat. And uh, he was trying to get colleagues there on the Hill to, to you know, to pick up the banner and, and, and try to come out with some legislation to figure out how we can deal with some of these environmental insults. And it was just uh, going nowhere. And um, so he was watching television one night and he saw the Vietnam protests on TV. And he thought to himself, how can I grab that 
kind of enthusiasm shown by all of these young people, all these college students. How could I capture that and turn it around and have it focused on environmental issues? So he decided to go for it. He contacted an activist out in California by the name of uh, Dennis Hayes, who had been involved in a lot of the Vietnam protests. And they worked together and they decided, well, what the heck, we're gonna try to put together a day in the spring of 1970. We're gonna put it in April between uh, spring break and uh, final exams so that the college kids can participate. And we're gonna call it Earth Day. And they had absolutely no idea what was gonna happen, but a lot of advertisements, a lot of outreach. The day came and they were absolutely blown away. Uh, people, young, old, communities grabbing brooms, picking up trash, doing what they could, and it really captured uh, the headlines. And a couple things came from that, of course, and that same year, 1970, uh, two federal agencies were formed um, by Nixon, who was president at the time, Republican. Uh, one was NOAA, uh, which came into uh, view in, in October, and then in December 7th, the Environmental Protection Agency was actually formed um, in, in D.C. And, uh, and then, of course, Earth Day itself continued on every day since then. And, and Bob mentioned this as the 51st um, celebration of Earth Day. It's a global event now. Uh, and I think that over the next couple of years, we're going to see some wonderful things coming from it. We do every year. So it's, uh, that's, that's how it all got started. You know, I actually... Interestingly enough, I I remember the first Earth Day. I, I you know I'll, I'll date myself a little. I was in sixth grade then, and um, it was kind of it was kind of a big deal. You know, we, we were still you know 1970. We were kind of hippie-ish, wearing our bell bottoms and doing all that stuff. And I I believe we were out like picking up trash on the street or something. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was I. I had no idea what we were looking at, but I did. I did at that point. I took notice of the fact that there were some rivers on fire. That wasn't yeah, a good thing. We, we had a few. And, and what was interesting, um, once EPA got started, uh, I joined EPA in June of 1971. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, after Nixon went ahead and established it, Congress suddenly woke up and said, you know, our president has just put this regulatory agency out there. And it really doesn't have many authorities upon which it could base a lot of this actions. There was just, I think there was an 1899 Rivers and Harbors Act or something. It was about the only authority. So over the course of the next several years, there was just a whole bunch of statutes that came off the Hill, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, all the way up to the Toxic Substances Control Act, Superfund and everything else. Um, and it was really interesting as the agency came together because um, it was, it started as an amalgamation, if you will, of, of existing uh, organizations from small organizations like the, the Federal Water Pollution Control Administration to uh, NASA, because they were looking at using remote sensing and, and water quality and quantity issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can imagine the whirlwind that was like bringing together not only all of those different organizations and making them work, but also in responding to the ever-changing uh, landscape of uh, statutory authorities. And we were lucky to have a very good first administrator, Bill Ruckelshaus, who somehow or other made it all happen. And um, it, was, it was great fun as, as new statutes came on, people in the agency would sort of migrate over to the organization that they thought uh, was a, a better fit for them academically and professionally. And, um, 
and and we just grew and and um, of course the the folks on the regulatory community side of it weren't very happy. Right. Um, right. Life was a little bit challenging for them and for us. Um, and uh, we lived in a world of permitting and compliance and enforcement and standard setting and that kind of stuff. And and we visited the courts quite often. Um, but um, we. Um, we, we managed to move the needle and that was what we were expected to do and things uh, and things started moving out. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, because you were there just shortly after the inception, right? You, you joined the EPA about six months after it was created. Right. Um, so that was, I mean, in the early days, uh, you know, the original administrator, uh, William Ruckel's house, I mean, he had, he had a challenge, right? He was herding cats. I mean, because he was, it it was easy. Amazing. well, he, he assembled a very good team. And I mean, we went, I mean, we literally had meetings, I can remember, where we were sitting around almost like we're doing right now with Zoom, but back then it was, I don't know how they did it, but we were looking at various faces from around the, the 10 different regions that EPA had. We were sitting there talking about the design of the logo for the agency. I mean, that's how far back and how, how we had to go back to bare bones. And uh, and of course, he was, you know, he came right out of the blocks and, and started putting pressure on industry uh, on, to remove certain chemicals from the environment. And, and, and it just was amazing. And he came back actually for a second run at it. He was an administrator a second time. Um, and uh, both times he was just a remarkable man to work for. It, it, it was interesting too, you know, because I think our mindset it took a while, but there, there was a definite mindset change in this country. I mean, I can remember when I was a kid, people, it wasn't uncommon for people to throw trash and bottles right out of the window of their car when they're driving down the road. That was like almost considered normal. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, not in my family. I mean, my father would have broke my hand, but I mean, you know, but I, I used to see people do that all the time. And it just, I, I remember there was that ad campaign that was on TV at the time. Uh, again, early days, right? I, I, probably 71, 72, where they had the Native American chief sitting on his horse alongside oh, yeah. the road. And, uh, yeah. and and to me that was that's still an impactful little segment today. I think looking at that. Yeah, we actually had a, a logo. We had a little um, what was he a little bear or something? He never stuck around, you know. But uh, we had a, a logo like that for EPA. It, it was, but it's interesting though, Bob, because a, a lot of the a lot of the mindset started to change most dramatically um, in the early 1990s. Um, like I mentioned, there were a lot of uh, statutes that we drew our authority from, most of them regulatory in nature. But in 1990, um, we actually at EPA worked uh, with the Hill to pass what was probably one of the smallest statutes, but one of the mightiest. It was the Pollution Prevention Act. And it brought into the conversation things like environmentally preferable purchasing. And in other words, buying things that were good for the environment. It really brought the whole recycling program to life. It brought, you know, it, it, as you were mentioning a moment ago, people began to understand that their actions had consequences with respect to how they, they treated their waste. And um, it, it really started changing the, there was sort of a pollution prevention movement that came into play uh, and industry started to look at it and look at us a lot differently than they had before. Um, I can remember- How so, how so? Well, I can remember uh, one of the largest um, automotive manufacturers back then uh, actually came in and visited with me and my staff. And we were somewhat shocked when the question they asked us is, we would like your help 
and finding a way to green our supply chain. That we, we knew that a lot of our suppliers were not as environmentally conscious as we would like them to be, but we don't think we can do this ourselves and we, you know, we, we need your help. So we started working with them and actually formed a program called the Green Suppliers Network and that is still going on today uh, where they're trying to, to work with their suppliers. And, and, and it's, it's been extremely valuable for them in terms of not only the, their environmental footprint, but also economically um, for them. Uh, we also had a visit from the healthcare. Um, uh, they came in and they said, we got a problem. We, uh, we deal with mercury. We wanna get mercury out. Uh, we know that uh, it's a difficult thing to do. We need your help. And so we worked in a public-private partnership with, the, with them, and you're hard-pressed now to find mercury in any of the medical practices because uh, they found another and a better way. Same thing happened with the utility industry. So the whole conversation sort of went from an end-of-pipe conversation to a source conversation and from a cradle-to-grave con conversation <laughs> to a cradle-to-cradle conversation. So it was really a mindset change and it, it really propelled industry forward on their own, uh, which was, I think, extremely valuable. So EPA, uh, you know, from way, the way you're uh, recalling it, it basically did a lot that wasn't just strictly in regulatory in nature, right? So there, there was some collaborative work with industry, which I wasn't really that well aware of. It, I mean, when you talk to a lot of people about EPA, they'll tell you right off the bat, EPA is a regulatory agency and it was designed that way and it's functioned that way. Um, but we also found out that um, as long as we had the statutory authority that we could draw our, our efforts from, and that being the Pollution Prevention Act was one of the primary ones, um, that public-private partnerships had a lot of value. And it, it provided us opportunities to bring together people from different federal agencies to work issues with industry. Um, we, uh, we worked with communities. In my last several years there, we worked a lot with communities to find ways of um, working together, which was a really odd thing to think about back then. But we actually brought agencies together to work together with community organizations. And it really had a lot of value, a lot of benefit. I mean, it's... I think it's important, right? Because, you know, just that's the carrot and stick approach, right? You know, comparing the two. And uh, so do you feel that um, in part those efforts were able to maybe steward uh, some of the uh, corporate community into uh, doing this on more of a voluntary basis, you know, and, and really trying to trying to view their corporate sustainability practices? It, uh, yes, but I would I would phrase it this way. In the 1990s, about maybe mid through the 1990s, many of these businesses, many of whom we were working with, began to realize that being a good environmental performer was actually part of the business case. They found that by actually selling products or doing uh, or conducting processes or whatever that were better for the environment, it worked, uh, worked well for them economically. Um, and what's very interesting about that is that you started hearing words like uh, corporate social responsibility pop up and over the ages, years, uh, it's really become more of a sustainability discussion at this point. Sustainability is sort of the, uh, the word that, that most people use. And what's really interesting, and I've told this to a lot of young people that I, I talk to, is that um, if you go now to some of the major corporations in this country and you look at the C-suite, 
you now see corporate sustainability officers sitting next to all the other um, you know, officers on, at the board, board table. It's become a big thing. Uh, and that's not just here in America, but it's become a globally a big thing. So, uh, and, that's, and that's all good. But I mean, that, that's, that's sort of a paradigm shift, but I mean, it's a, it's a result of a paradigm shift in the general public's views, right? Because, I mean, yeah. you know, back in the day, again, you know, back in the 70s, 60s, we, we were all about, um, you know, chemicals making the world better and, th- you know, throwing, you know, we were kind of going in that direction and, you know, yeah. basically limitless, you know, limitless resources. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I think that that still holds. I mean, chemical, we're all chemicals, right? We use chemicals. We are chemicals. Sure. Um, it's just that we, we want to make sure that we're using the ones that are good for us and not using the ones that are going to cause harm. Um, but I, I think uh, I think a lot of people um, it, it, in the beginning, they all thought that if it was an environmental product, it probably didn't work. Uh, or they thought if it's an environmental product, it's probably going to cost me more. Um, but we, we got through that really just through a lot of tenacity and, and good advertising, working with industry. We're to now, I think there's an expectation among uh, folks that, you know, I want something that is better for me, better for the house on the indoor air areas, Bob, that you're involved in so much. It's, we know that what we're putting down now is a lot better for us in the environment, uh, but still doing the job that it was originally uh, created to do. So there's been a complete paradigm shift there. And, and, and I think this younger generation coming up has, has really embraced it. I mean, absolutely embraced it. Well, and you think about it too, you know, and, and you're, you're right in that we here at Healthy Indoors, we spend most of our time in our discussions and efforts on the indoor environments um, or, you know, around, you know, the built indoor environments. But the reality is they're not detached from the outdoor world. And, and that's why we recognize that early on. And that's why we've always talked about sustainability issues. And, uh, you know, the, the outdoor environment, of course, affects the indoor environment, right? Sure. Uh, it, it's critically important. And you, and you you can't separate the two. So, you know, certainly I think it's, it's all, it's all really a, a common issue of how we're going to have a healthy environment in general, indoors and outdoors for us all to thrive and survive in. It is. And, it, and you know, I always tell people is that it, it's all system. I mean, back in the early days when we first got started, it was all about ecosystem. We don't usually use that term that much anymore, right. but that's what it is. I mean, everything that we do, whether we're doing it in the water medium air, or if we're dealing with pesticides or other toxic chemicals or whatever, it's all part of a system. Uh, climate change is all part of a system. Uh, so if you, if you try to dwell too much on one facet of it, a lot of times you get sort of wrapped around the axle a little bit. You sort of need to keep the communication open with all facets of it. You know, I just wanted to remind everyone out in our virtual studio audience, we have quite a few people uh, logged in with us today. Um, it, shortly, you know, in, at, usually at 1235-ish, right? <laughs> we're, we're fluid here. Uh, somewhere between 1230 and 1235, we'll actually open up uh, your ability to uh, turn your cameras on and uh, jump in and actually post some questions. And we'll moderate those, but we'd l- like you to start thinking about questions you'd like to pose to uh, Tom uh, and or me. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, we'd like to entertain those as part of our discussion as we uh, move this conversation forward. But Tom, um, you know, you, you touched on climate change there. Let's, you know, what, tell me a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on it. I mean, I, in my editorial that I just penned actually today for the April issue, you know, I, 
I was lamenting on the fact that it seems like we lost some valuable time, you know, in the past four years. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think a lot of people feel that way, Bob, and, and I'm, I'm also one of them. I mean, I've, I've watched as programs that I had uh, helped put together have, have sort of been put to rest a little bit over the last few years. Um, but I, I don't know that it is as bad as one might think. And um, let me just offer a, a few uh, thoughts on that of things that have occurred that I think might give us a little bit more a spirit on, on where we're going with climate change. Um, the first we've talked about a little bit already is the corporate side of things. Um, corporations really haven't slowed down that much during the last four or five years in terms of their sustainability efforts. They all have sustainability strategies, some stretching out 15 years or so. A lot of it, uh, if you look at the automotive industry in particular, they're going gung-ho. I mean, a lot of them are announcing right now they're going to all electric vehicle fleets. Uh, so they have been carrying the water, um, you know, all this time and doing great things. The utility industry, they're um, seeing a lot more in the renewable energy, more windmills, more, more solar. Those industries have just flourished over the last four or five years. Um, and, and more and more people now, both in community level and industrial level, are, are using renewable energy. Uh, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, I think a lot of people like myself, uh, people who were in the Obama administration left then, um, they never stopped working. I've never stopped working. And a lot of people have been sort of keeping the embers lit um, behind closed doors or with other organizations uh, over the last few years and are finding their way back into the limelight. I think um, uh, Gina McCarthy, for example, has, has moved into the White House now. She was our administrator not that long ago. And I think a couple other things. Um, the kids. Uh, I've had the opportunity to spend some time with some high school kids who are looking to their future uh, and where they want to go. And they're extremely passionate uh, about uh, that. And they, um, they understand climate change. And unlike us, I think when we were coming through, uh, we were passionate, certainly, but this younger generation is not afraid to put it all out there. They get out there, they'll be on the streets with the placards and the stuff, sort of like the original Earth Day kind of concept. And, and really, I have a lot of faith that they are going to move things forward. And then the, the final thing, which is sort of a very ironic and odd thing, is that the pandemic itself has actually opened our eyes a bit, given us perspective. Um, as things slowed down, carbon emissions went down, people in Venice were able to see in, into the canals and actually see things swimming in the canals. Um, but it showed that if you were to reduce activities, the, the environment would be resilient enough to respond to it. Uh, now, we know that as we're coming out of the pandemic, a lot of that's going to come back online. But the hope is that we'll come back with that perspective driving sort of a new normal. So yes, it's been, it's been sort of lousy when you look at it, um, but I think we've got some, some horses out there now to move it forward and move it forward quickly. And I, I tell everybody on the call, watch out for the kids. Their history will show that they're, they're gonna really pick up this ball and run with it. Well, I mean, I, I'm heartened to see that, you know, the climate, uh, climate change, uh, 
uh, topics have been elevated to cabinet level status now in the United States, which, you know, uh, and, and as we spoke about in the, in the pre-show, you know, two, you know, two different uh, positions, one for the, you know, dealing with domestic, one dealing right. with the global, which I, I, are clearly distinctly different issues, right? Right. You're facing them both. Absolutely. I, absolutely. You need, you need to have both and they all, all, you know, they work together as well. And, and you, you need to, I mean, a lot of people, when they talk about climate change, they get hung up just on the carbon. Um, and and they, they don't realize the full, again, system and the, the effect that the carbon has on not only in the atmosphere, but the way that the atmospheres reduces their heat by giving it to the oceans and the effect that that heat has on the oceans in terms of creation and, and feeding uh, storms, hurricanes, et cetera, is not, and not only that, but affecting the, the ability of a lot of the shellfish to be able to make their shells and retain their shells. So it's all a big system. And, um, and, and we just need to, to take a look at all of that together and then just really push ourselves into a, a new normal that I think will be better in the long run. And as we're speaking today, there's actually a, a climate meeting, right, going on uh, President Biden, a lot, a lot of the representatives from all really the major players, right? Oh, yeah. China's president, every, everybody's in on that. I, I heard it was a Zoom call, which seems odd. It, you know, that, it, it is. A, it, it is, right? It's a Zoom call. It's which, a Zoom and I always call. Thought, yeah. And I mean, they, I, I haven't really focused too much on it, but what I did focus on, I mean, it's got like 50 or so people. And I think that even Pope Francis was supposed to be on the call and Vladimir Putin's on the call and a variety of other people around the, uh, the world. Uh, so it's, that's, uh, that's going to be quite something. But I think Biden's going to be coming out with some very aggressive carbon reduction goals for the United States to sort of kick us back into the game a little bit. So we'll, yeah, that's the, the rumor yeah. is that he's going to almost cut or, or double the uh, cuts, right. That were originally proposed yeah. in the Obama administration. Yeah. 50% reduction by yeah. the end of the decade, I think based on, I want to say it's 2005 levels. I can't, remember. I think it was, yeah. 2005 levels, yeah, which so. that's aggressive. That's aggressive. Very but I mean, aggressive. again, yeah. for us to get there, you know, a lot of it, what do you, you know, I think one of the steps, right. Is we, we have to kind of defossil fuel our, our world <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's I, I, tough, right? People, you know, there's there's a lot of money not wanting us to do that. And there's just a lot of resistance to, you know, approaching things differently. Well, you know, we uh, we don't like change. Human beings don't like change. I mean, when we moved from horse and buggy to the automobile, they didn't like that. Moving to the locomotive, they didn't like that. Right. Um, there are a lot of people. But, you know, when you when you go into the coal country and you talk to a lot of the people there now, uh, coal has diminished. But yeah. it, it has diminished by, by, for other reasons as well. I mean, there's a lot of community, there's a lot of moms out there that don't want their sons to, to live their careers inside a coal mine. Yeah, like why the hell would you want that as, a, like, you know, bringing coal back? I've never understood that concept. It, 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 why would you does, want that as your future? It's yeah, not a good don't. future. <laughs> you don't. And if you look at a lot of the community colleges in and up uh, Appalachia, they, they're now taking a lot of those, those uh those you know, kids growing up in that area and they're getting them involved in other activities and, and other, um, you know, areas of performance. So, uh, and renewables, as I said, has really been going crazy. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that as we move forward. Yeah. And, you know, you, as you mentioned, you know, change, change is scary, right? You know, so's extinction. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, the, the reason that we have fossil fuels is like the, the predecessors that whose bodies and, you know, uh, the, both the vegetative and animal forms, you know, uh, are not here anymore. 
right? Right. You know, there, but, there's you know, a reason. But again, the, the, if you look at the renewable energy industry, and primarily it's, you know, hydrothermal and wind and, and um, solar, they are growing so rapidly that they're going to be attracting a lot of other entrepreneurs and others that want to get in on that side of the game. And I think when that starts to happen, I think you're going to see, see a steady shift uh, away from the fossil fuel more towards uh, renewables. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, I mean, the pandemic, as horrible as it's been, has sort of given us a sneak preview of what things could be like um, should we do that and go in that direction. So uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a long haul. It's going to be fret with all kinds of controversy and arguments and such. But um, again, the young kids will carry the torch. I mean, it's true. Yeah, during, you know, when there was diminished travel, diminished manufacturing going on, especially in places like India, you did see a real high reduction in the PM 2.5 outdoor levels, you know, yeah. obviously, right? Just less, yeah. less uh, fossil fuel uh, being utilized then. But it still seems like there's, you know, we, you know, in the industrialized world, like the United States, have we have the luxury of having financial resources to make change. But, you know, it's not quite as simple for some third world countries that are, you know, that are, you know, that are kind of on the cusp of industrializing, you know, and, and their options really, you know, to go to a more costly, uh, you know, initiatives is tough for them, right? I mean, it's, it's tough for them. And I think you also have people out there that have actually found their way into the industrialized world and they have basically, you know, developed their, uh, their, their societies and their, their cultural development around new industries, sort of like the way that we were back in the 1930s and 40s as we really were, you know, coming through the industrial age. And so, you know, trying to get them to, to slow down what is something that they have found to be favorable uh, and to look at some of these other approaches is equally um, difficult to do as people who just can't seem to, to, to get the right uh, foothold to get moving on it. It's, I mean, it's a challenge. And I think, you know, somehow, you know, the industrialized nations have to, you know, it's almost, it's this carrot and stick approach. You can't threaten them and say they have to do this stuff. You have to incentivize and make it possible for them to actually reach those things. Because certainly, you know, if we were to, you know, greatly reduce or eliminate coal for our electric production, you know, if a bunch of other countries just start ramping up their coal use, you know, yeah. we're not, we're not, there's no net benefit there, right? Yeah, this yeah, has to be global. We had that. Uh, we had that, especially with mercury. When we were dealing with mercury, we've done a, a fairly good job. In fact, I think um, we, uh, when I was at EPA, we had like a 99% reduction in mercury levels coming out of medical waste incinerators and and things of that nature. But uh, you still have a lot of mercury use over in Brazil and other countries. And once that little puppy gets up into the atmosphere, it will it will globe trot. I mean, it will find its way everywhere. So you, you do have that. You know, but I don't know. I guess, Bob, the way I look at this a lot is that if you look at other facets of who we are, uh, if you look in the IT industry, if you look in the communications industry, you look at all of these others, the fact that we're on Zoom right now doing this, mm -hmm. this wonderful call, um, we, we, the advancement that we have seen in a lot of these other aspects, that advancement can be felt, too, in some of the, the more sluggish manufacturing uh, processes and such, it, it will come. It may, it may just take a while, but it will come. And, and, I, and I think you'll start to see a lot. I mean, just the fact that we're all going to be driving electric cars in the next 20 years. Um, yeah, I mean, but, but that brings with it 
other issues too. We still need electricity. Well, you know, like if if you're charging your electric car with coal uh, fired power plant generated electricity. Exactly. uh, Or, or at the end of life of those little puppies, you got this huge battery Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to figure out what you're going to do. I know the automotive industry is thinking about that right now. Sure. Um, And and, most of them, most of them are starting to get old. I have a Prius that's six years old now. There you go. (laughs) But but the thing is, is, and as this is one of the things that I'm working on right now through my consulting uh, business is I'm working here with the state of Maryland um, about that whole waste paradigm. We're, We're working right now uh, with the the governor's office has an executive order dealing with moving from a traditional waste kinds of processes to a sustainable materials management process where waste becomes marketable materials. Uh, And so uh, one of the things we're working with is, is there a way of taking a lot of those batteries from the automotive sector uh, and turn them into marketable products once they are torn down and and processed and you know at the end of the life so so that's again part of the system you have to have that sustainable materials management concept and way of looking at things uh, and break away from some of the traditional landfill types of approaches uh, a lot of companies out there are, are very proud to say that they're landfill free now that's a goal and they're in their um, various strategies and, and visions and so I think that's important. Is that they, we, you know, it will move us in the right direction. There'll always be problems, but it will move us the right. No, direction. and that's and that's huge. And you, know, and you mentioned so you you've been on your own in the private sector consulting now, right? You have you have yeah. your firm. You're yeah. based in Ocean City, Maryland. Yes. Um. So um. So do you? Uh, I I know we met at a conference. That was actually how how we met, right? You were out as a consultant uh, several yeah. years ago. Yep. Um. Yeah. And you were dealing with recycling uh, mercury, right, from thermostats, right? Thermostats, yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 really interesting because when when I left the agency, and and I think this holds true for a lot of people that I've met uh, in in my travels in the environmental side, is that there's a certain passion that you have that you carry with you, and it never really goes away. Uh, and when I when I left EPA. Um, I immediately set up a consulting, not knowing what I would consult on, but uh, I've had the the luxury of working on mercury-containing thermostats. I've worked with the uh, Department of Commerce uh, here in Maryland on some of the work they've done with local manufacturing. And like I mentioned earlier, right now I'm working with the state of Maryland on the sustainable materials management approach uh, where we're trying to bring people together around that. So, uh, you know, a lot of people when I left said, you know, you're retiring, right? And I said, no, not really, but uh, I'm not working certainly at the level I was when I was with federal service, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's been rewarding and I'll, I'll probably keep it going for a while longer. Good. Well, I hopefully you keep, keep, keep writing for the magazine too. Uh, I know I corralled you into that at that. It was, I believe it was uh, an HPC show. I, it I think was, and, and you know, and, and Philadelphia, I'm, right? Was it 16? It was, it was, yes. And <laughs> Time I'm, flies. It's five years ago. It was. And I'm, I'm glad you did because I thoroughly enjoy it. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, difficult every once in a while to get just that right uh, concept to talk or topic talk about but I, I hope that next month I'll be able to put something in there about what's happening today uh, and on Earth Day and all the different things that will be rolling out but it, it, it has been very it's been very good very rewarding I'm glad that we had that conversation 
Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. So I'd like to invite all of our uh, virtual studio audience, turn your cameras on, uh, stay muted, please, until you're asking a question. Uh, but, you know, turn your cameras on. Let's see your lovely faces. This, this, this is the exciting part of the show. And I know some of you are shy and don't want to turn your cameras on, but you really should. Uh, I have a question while we're, while we're getting this up and looking for our first uh, set of audience questions. How, because it seems like, and this, this drives me insane, by the way, it seems like we have politicized the topic of climate change in the United States more so than other countries in, in the industrialized world. You know, like it, it seems like science here becomes a political issue. How do you see any way that we can get this thing to not be partisan nonsense? And like, and, you know, we work together. How, how do we do that? It's, it's a challenge. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, if you remember the old good old monster movies back in the 1950s, I mean, it was always what? It was always the military and the politicians versus the scientists. You're trying to get rid of the giant ants or whatever it was that they were attacked. Being Sometimes attacked. Godzilla was the good guy. It really yeah, depends yeah, on the, the movie. You know? And turned out to be the good guys. I, you know, I, I really don't know the answer to that. I think that um, we will always have uh, folks on the Hill with special interests that that um, they just want to avoid the science when it's basically staring them in the face. Um, that's just going to happen. Uh, I, I think that, again, as, as environmental improvement, as um, scientific developments become embedded even deeper in the business case in corporations, um, I think the corporations will be the ones that will be pushing for change. Um, one of the things that um, happened while I was at EPA what was rather interesting. When corporations really picked up on the whole idea of uh, sustainability, the conversation between them and us changed a little bit. They began to say to us, you are standing in our way in terms of getting to our sustainability goals. And when we asked why, the answer was, well, we still have to comply with a definition or a regulation or a standard that you guys put in place back in the 1970s. And when Obama was president, we, we tried to, all the federal agencies were asked to go back and look at all of those legacy statutes and regulations and stuff and to change them or get rid of them, very hard to do. But that was basically providing uh, an impediment for the corporations. And so we started change, like the definition of solid waste was one I can remember. We actually changed the definition to help uh, corporate America. And the other thing that they wanted is they said, you guys have all the data. You guys are rich in data and we need that data. Uh, and so we would provide the data to them and because they were moving. And so as they move, I think we'll see a lot of movement on the Hill. Uh, and I think the states, as they move, and they have been considerably, we're going to see a lot of movement on the Hill. And then finally, as I keep harping on, um, over the course of time, a lot of these young kids are going to be running for office. And I think we're going to start seeing some radical change when they get into, into office. So um, there's hope out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not totally pessimistic, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm alarmed yeah, I'm alarmed, I think, and reasonably alarmed to the extent that I believe this is really, we're running out of time to be playing around with this 
this issue. This, yeah. this you know, we have to take action. Um, so anyway, with that, our, our, we have our first audience question. Terry Sofer, one of our, our regulars on the show. Terry, I'll, I'll give you the mic and uh, please pose your question. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for being with us, uh, Mr. Murray, and I commend you for your long public service career uh, at EPA. Thank you. Um, in the early versions of uh, uh, what we call sustainability movement, the focus was on recycling with virtually uh, little, if any, consideration of whether um, <clears throat> the recycled products were healthy for humans or the planet. What's your assessment of whether the current sustainability concepts are equally focused on healthy outcomes? Well, you're always going to, as you move along these lines and you try new things, you're going to stumble over a few things, and I'm sure that we will. Um, one of the interesting things that have, has happened, um, Terry, is the, um, the recycling concept per se is starting to lose a little bit of its steam. Uh, a lot of states and communities are finding it very um, costly to maintain their recycling. In fact, where I am in Ocean City, Maryland, we don't have a recycling program anymore. It all goes into a Cavanta facility and is basically burned and they create energy from it. And that has its own good things and bad things. Um, the latest conversation that's happening out there um, is one focused on the whole cradle to cradle concept or, or taking materials, creating products from those materials so that at the end of life, they can become once again, marketable items. Um, and I think that's where we're going. Um, it's uh, if you can conceive of a, of, of a particular kind of process where you can, I'm, I'm jesting a little bit here, but if you were to take a, an automobile and stick it down into a flux capacitor kind of a thing, and at the end you get all of these bins full of materials <laughs> uh, that you could actually use again. Um, that's going to be something we're going to see. I mean, and for some problematic items like diapers and 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 uh, mattresses, which a lot of people mattresses they like to leave on the side of the road still. Um, we're going to start seeing a lot of that material being built better and processed better, and then at the end. We're going to see materials that can come out and be used for other things. Now, will there be problems associated with all of that? Probably. Um, there may, you know, I don't know what they might be, but we we would likely see something like that. Um, but I, I think it's definitely the way to go, and and it, it gets us away from some of the issues we're having with recycling right now. What's What's interesting, you know, you raise that issue about recycling, and you know, I've. And I always was a very, you know, I have and still have been a very staunch recycler in my own own world. But what's frustrating to me is where we live in New York, uh, it's all single stream recycling. Yeah. And, you know, that's really problematic, as you know, because single stream recycling pretty much means you get glass smashed up, you know, inside of your cardboard, which means, you know, everything gets mixed together. And what I've read is upwards of 70% of what we've in good faith recycled ends up in the landfill anyway. How do we get around that? I mean, I do we know. have to go to multi multi-stream recycling? Because that's that's how it started. Either multi-stream recycling, or you have a process where you could throw all kinds of stuff into it. The process itself will pull everything apart, send it down disparate streams, and then at the end, you may have everything that came out of the plastic stream, everything that came out of the rubber, you know, whatever, and refined in a way that it can be, you know, reused. Uh, I think that's where where we're going, but. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's and that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of communities are having difficulties with recycling because it's the cost to get through a lot of that. Um, you know, it's just been it's just not been working out very well. What's also been problematic is we don't really have. Uh, uh, sources to offload it to, right? We, you know, we were, China was buying tons of our recycled plastic and materials, but you know, that they were accepting stuff that was relatively contaminated, right? You know, yeah, uh, and yeah. you know, a lot of people throw stuff in the recycle bin that's, you know, full of Hershey syrup or whatever, not to pick on Hershey's, but you know, you know, dirty containers and, and that stuff pretty much when you do that, it's going, you almost ensure it's going to end up in a landfill. Yeah, you do. And, and I'm, 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 I'm pleased to see there's a commercial running right now on TV where the three major uh, cola bottling companies are talking about the fact that they're recycling their, their bottles and they're coming out with the beads at the end that they can use to make more bottles. But one of the things that they mentioned in that commercial, which is interesting, um, is it used to be that the cap was not recycled. You had to remove each and every single cap uh, from the recycling stream. But now they're saying that the, even the cap can be used to recycle the, their bottles, which is a, it's a it's a small step, but it, it sort of gets to the issue you're talking about: is that there are there are problems, and each one has to be uh, addressed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's actually a large step. You know, like just like as, as I was uh, mentioning, you know, back in the '70s when, I, I you know, I, I hate to even mention this, but I had friends that would literally, first of all, be driving with open beers in their car, you know, in the '70s, and then throwing the bottles out the freaking window, which I would lose my mind with them back then for two reasons, you know, yeah. but ma mainly throwing the throwing the trash out the window, and uh, and that was prior to the uh, bottle bill in New York. You know, yep. with, and uh, one of my good friends was in, involved heavily working with Nyperg, you know, getting that initial one through. Yep. And, you know, I, I at the time I was like, ah, oh, this isn't going to make any difference. But, you know, lo and behold, that five cents actually got a lot of people to stop throwing their bottles out. Yeah. It, it really does. And, and it, it does have one of the things they're doing here in Ocean City, which is interesting, is that you can imagine a lot of people sit on the beach and smoke cigarettes and then they just throw the butts in the sand. They have now set up a process, and again, you need people to make this happen, and we got good people here. They set up a process now where you can, they have these dispensers everywhere where you can put the, I like basically like containers, I guess, rather than dispensers. You put the butt in there, and then they actually have found a company that can take all of that material, and they actually make marketable products from it. And so your butt today might be a picnic bench next year you know it's sort of uh it's sort of interesting but again it takes it takes um, a lot of creative thinking and um and you know every once in a while one of these ideas will catch on terry you have a follow-up I'll, I'll give you the mic again we have to you have to un no you don't have a follow-up you made a follow-up comment you don't you don't want to just so uh, it's okay i but it was it was in the uh commentary so i was thinking you might want to be there um so, Tom, uh, you, you know, you have that long history at EPA. I mean, you know, really almost from the inception, right, six months after it was founded to 2016. So al almost not quite the entire history of EPA uh, under your belt working there. Um, what do you have general impressions from, you know, like how things may have changed? I mean, you, you know, a 44 year run. Um, at, you know, initially we started with rivers on fire, right? <laughs> right. you know, and, and things got better. I mean, I think as, as a child too, like my family's from uh, Metro New York area and I remember, and I lived in upstate and I, 
I remember driving down and seeing the Manhattan skyline and a lot of times you couldn't see it, right? It was so right. hazy and just awful back in the seventies. The odor was just terrible, uh, especially driving across uh, by Secaucus, New Jersey, which still is, doesn't smell that great, but it, you know, it's definitely better. Right. Uh, but, but, but then seeing the difference, like, you know, decades later of, you know, seeing a clear New York city skyline. I mean, the, we've, as far as the clean air act, we, we made some headway. We have, I mean, we've, we've had in, in so many areas. I mean, um, uh, even in the area that you probably work with more is in the pesticides area. If you just think about, I mean, back in the 70s, DDT, we still had DDT out there. Rachel Carson's book dealt with that. Um, and, and so there's been a lot of new developments in just the registration of pesticides and the testing of pesticides and things of that nature. Water quality, I think, has improved considerably uh, over the years. Um, uh, you know, a lot of that came through compliance and enforcement of um, MPDES permits and things of that nature. Um, and you have you had stumbles every once in a while where there'd be a spill uh, that would have to be uh, dealt with. Um, I, I remember too um, in the um, in the latter part of the time I was there in solid waste issues and, and things like that when Superfund was first coming online. Um, one of the issues that we dealt with, and I wrote about this in one of the snippets recently, is that um, a lot of these sites uh, were basically covered over. Uh, and that uh, years later, uh, parks, school grounds, things like that were actually built on top of it. And reports started coming in that um, kids were getting sick. And so um, some of the NASA satellite photography that we did back in the early 70s, we were able to go back and actually look at that parcel of land as it was back in the 70s and compare it to the current day at the time. And we found that it was in fact a, a super fun site and it was actually stuff in the soil that was causing the problems. Um, so it, uh, you know, so it, that, that type of thing where you can actually find a solution, find a problem, get a solution and correct it. Uh, was was very rewarding and it happened I think more often than not over the years the course of the years um, I did a lot of work with um, uh, toxic chemicals like dioxins and mercury and PB uh, PCBs and things of that nature TFCs uh, and so again through I mean industry um, um, they are required by law that if they find anything, any chemical in, in the human body through their testing, they have to report it to the EPA. And so uh, the, the work that we saw with PFOA, PFOS and PFOA came to the agency that way. And it helped create a, a program all to itself where over the course of time, we work with industry to, to get rid of that. Um, I mentioned mercury in the healthcare area. Um, you cannot find, I remember, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdotal uh, story that I love to tell about mercury. I, um, I was invited to the National Institutes of Health to meet with a bunch of medical doctors about mercury and the environmental effects of mercury. And uh, we're sitting around a table and all of these old wise medical doctors were listening intently to what I was saying. And this one guy, this one doctor just sort of gruffly said to me uh, in, in no easy way, he says, you're an idiot. And I said, why is that? And he says, you, what you don't realize is that mercury is our gold standard. We use it to calibrate every piece of equipment we use in the medical field. And I said, yeah, I'm aware of that. And I said, I'm just suggesting that maybe we find something else. And so the conversation went on and on and got nowhere. And finally, a guy from the Mayo Clinic basically looked at his colleague and said, you know what? Maybe we just need a new gold standard. <laughs> 
And, and you know, a com uh, just a comment like that, where people realize that, you know, change could be made just by changing your view of things. And like I said, you cannot find mercury now in, in healthcare. You just can't. And because of, uh, they knew it was not good for human health. And so they did something about it. I mean, that's a pretty good turnaround in the course of a conversation going from an idiot to maybe we need a new standard. So that's, you got to feel at least somewhat successful at that. Yeah, right? somewhat successful, right? <laughs> so I see we have another question. Tom, you have a question? Well, I've been struggling to uh, ask one, and I think it just came up from the last example. I, I'm fascinated with our guest because my wife just retired after 30 years in FEMA. Her mother's passing was on Earth Day many years ago. Mm -hmm. And here is someone who was at the beginning. Uh, we have the same length of career, 45 years. So my question is, uh, connected to uh, care and leadership of the students, but it goes to something uh, deeper than we usually talk about. In education, we talk about environment all the time. In fact, we talk about safe learning environment, orderly environment, professional environment, secure environment. And what we really mean is what's going on in the schools. Maybe this is more with the indoors part. But the part that I've been working on 25 years is to get safe, clean, hygienic restrooms for students, bathrooms mm -hmm. for students that they will use. So my question is to, to Tom, to not think as a public servant, but as a thoughtful um, bureaucrat in the best sense of the wor word, how do we get kids to care about a taboo subject which is right in their own backyard when they do care about something as global as global warming, but they can't get doors on the stalls in their bathrooms. That's a very good point. Um, the, the first answer I would give to you is that um, a day like today, Earth Day, is a perfect kind of day to get together with your local school districts and even your local schools and come up with uh, ideas like that, where if you can get some of the kids to, to say, okay, next Earth Day, we want to focus on why it is that, you know, we, I don't know, pick whatever it is, don't have the right doors on the, on the bathrooms, uh, and then put together sort of a, a project to, to talk about it, talk to the community leaders about it, talk to the school system about it, whatever, as part of a sort of a, a project, whether it be done on Earth Day or not. Um, I, I think sort of on the example that you gave, Tom, which is sort of interesting, is that I think this crazy pandemic that we've been living through in many ways is going to create um, new ways of and new method methodologies for keeping things clean in schools and other uh, buildings. Uh, I think that we that will be part of our new normal going forward. Um, but I, I think it just gets back to, and you probably know this as well as I do, it, it gets back to basic communication with kids. I, uh, I had a conversation with a young girl named Ella uh, who called me and, and said that she was getting ready to go up to college and wanted to do something in the sustainability world. And she had no idea what to do and where to go. And she says, some people say I should go to work for EPA. Other people say I should stay in academia. And so we talked about what it is that was really bothering her and her world. And um, I think where we left it was that she was going to uh, look to an industry that um, 
she had an interest in, but look at it from a sustainability point of view and see if she could cut a, uh, a you know, a career in that area. But she was also, she was interested, just like you were suggesting, she was interested not only in the global perspective, but she's, she's right now working with kids in high school, putting together things, it's so cool. It, she's put together this iPod, uh, iPod or whatever it's called, um, which she gets all these kids together and they're doing like what we're doing right now. They're talking to people about issues that are of concern to them. And uh, I mean, yeah, there's another part of new normal. Let's use Zoom. Let's get kids together and in, in, in your class and let's talk about how do we can solve these issues. And you get, you know, the teacher on there and you get an administrator on there and let's talk about it. I loved your first suggestion because five years ago, I doubt anyone would know that, uh, but we could look at it in a future article or procession. The United Nations declared World Toilet Day, November <laughs> November 19th for the last five years has been celebrated. But in this country, we just flush and forget. We don't think about our, uh, our needs in sanitation and citizenship. And that's part of what uh, Bob was talking about. It's a citizenship uh, problem if you throw a bottle out of a car mm -hmm. and, and it's a societal consequence. But we've had World Toilet Day for five years. Is it, I've never heard of that, that, to be honest. It, that's yeah, that's it's my held, point. That's my point, QED. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you, it's held in Flushing Meadows, Meadows uh, New York, right? Uh, that's a joke. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that was, really, that was a joke. bad joke, but it, it worked. But, you I, know, it was just, a good joke. Just wrap, <laughs> just wrap that up, Tom, because um, your, your example there of the flushing toilet and where it goes, that would be a perfect topic for a bunch of school kids to take on that issue and to actually, through pictures, show where that all goes, how much water is used and everything else. And it, it, because you're right, that awareness is never out there. We, we tend to be, as especially Americans, as Bob was saying, you know, you just you just use it, you toss it, use it, toss it, whatever, you flush it, whatever. And we don't need we need to think differently about it. You know, I mean, we tend to do that with everything, right? You go, you know, we go to fast food, which, you know, and, and you know, I travel a bit, you know, so you get stuck eating fast food and yeah. you just see how everything's over packaged, especially right. now, you know, with, with the pandemic. Now everything's, yeah. there's nothing, you don't touch anything. So everything's all disposable. And it's just like, we, we really do waste and ge or generate a lot of waste per person in this country. Oh, we and do. We do. It's amazing way around it um tom so we're getting to that point we're, al we're almost out of time so i guess i wanted to uh give you an opportunity to uh give us kind of your, your final thoughts uh you know what what we may not have covered here in our brief uh 60 minutes together um i'd like to just you know give your final thoughts on earth day and uh you know your outlook for the future i guess uh well i again i i think that um what what i've been thinking about a lot, uh, and a lot of it's been driven more by the pandemic than anything else, Bob, is that um, we have learned a lot over the last year uh, about ourselves and about the society we live in, what we do, how we do it. We need to really take seriously the concept of a new normal. Um, there is, we are so, as humans, we, we just do this. We always wanna slide back to the way things were, the comfort zones that we all had, um, I think, um, you know, when we come out of the new normal, uh, some things will obviously just happen naturally because we found that we needed it and could use it, like making sure that the toilets at a local school are clean for the kids. 
Um, but I think people in, in all walks of life, especially those in the manufacturing world, corporate world, they, they really do need to take a look and say, you know, maybe this is the time to maybe change the footprint of our manufacturing process so we're not wasting as much energy or wasting as, a lot of motion or things of that nature and, and refine what we do and improve what we do and buy the better materials and look more sustainably. Now's the time to do it because we've had that, that, that moment, that pause. And I, I think if, if there was one message to, to everybody on the call is that start thinking about the new normal is really truly a new normal. Uh, and, and change is good and can be good. Uh, and we now have an idea of what it's like when it's not good. And so I, I think that that's, that's my, my final message to everybody. That's a good one. That's, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to you know, do a final plug out uh, for what we do with the show here. Uh, Healthy Indoors, uh, the Healthy Indoors live show is obviously a production of uh, Healthy Indoors magazine. Um, so you can get What's great, we have our mothership, right? It's healthyindoors.com. And those of you watching the show are probably aware of it, or maybe not. Uh, healthyindoors.com is where all of our back issues, eight years plus of the magazine resigns, uh, resides. You can also get to back uh, episodes of the Healthy Indoors broadcast that we've been doing, as well as our audio podcast recordings. And uh, most recently, we've added the uh, Healthy Indoors online global community, which again, is is in the beta final beta stages. We're going to be launching it publicly very soon. Um, what this is is an online platform that'll allow you to network and engage with other people of uh, like interest. You know, so a, a totally dedicated indoor environmental platform that where issues on indoor air quality, sustainability, all that stuff will take place. Uh, it'll be an opportunity to meet with other professionals around the globe, uh, also share information, uh, view online event broadcasts, uh, repository of all of our uh, materials from both the magazine and the show, as well as a lot of other uh, trusted content providers. And we'll be adding more and more as we go. So we're really looking forward to that uh, full-fledged launch uh, really in the next week or two. And uh, would you know, like you, uh, encourage you to take an opportunity to click on it and uh, check it out. So with that, um, Tom, you know, it's, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And I know like early on we had, uh, we had conversations uh you know, back at conferences, back from 16, I think we crossed paths uh, at two or three events uh, over a short period of time. Yeah. And, uh, and I, there were some of the best multi-hour conversations I ever had at a conference. I'll be honest with you. I know I, I sat in the trade show with you with a cup of coffee, just going on and on. And you just, you just have just this, it's just a great, great overview of everything, your knowledge and experience. I just, I, you know, I, I'm in awe of it, to be honest. Oh, all thank you. Done. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I, and greatly appreciate what you do for us at Healthy Indoors, uh, writing that monthly column. Um, so, you know, best, best of luck with everything that you're doing. And again, you know, you're still, Tom is uh, Tom uh, Murray, environmental consulting in Ocean City, Maryland, you know, doing mm -hmm. environmental sustainability stuff. You're never going to retire, are you? I probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't 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 bring yourself to retiring you know no, no. I, it, I, that's a good thing though right uh, yeah you know if the ocean's just about 10 feet away eventually i'll go out there tie a line to my toe and sit there and fall asleep i guess but you know <laughs> just uh, we'll, we'll see when that day comes <laughs> you know you'd mentioned hemingway you know it's like yeah there there you go well i and, and i you know best of luck with you know with your uh your your authoring authoring is that the right term writing i guess writing, writing <laughs> authoring yes. 
authoring whatever. Uh, yeah. Anyway, well, w- with that, uh, always a pleasure, my friend. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. I, I just love it. And uh, we'll 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 talk again soon. No question about it. Um, so we, I guess we're at that time again, everyone. Uh, so we're going to bid adieu um, for the Healthy Indoors show and Healthy Indoors magazine. I'm Bob Krell. Please stay healthy, uh, stay safe, stay happy. We'll see you guys again next Thursday. Same time, same channel, 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern time.